Hello and welcome to the OTM podcast. I'm Miriam Higgins. And I'm Craig Brown. Today we are chatting to Tina Setherholm and Ashanti Wheeler-Artwell. Let's introduce you both. So Ashanti, tell us a bit about who you are and what you do. Hi, yeah. So I'm Ashanti. Um, It feels really weird saying all this because so much of the stuff I haven't done in like a year. But yeah, I'm a poet. um, I'm an actor. I'm a writer. I work in the marketing and art centre. And I think I'm an all-round dope person as well. (laughs) (laughs) Tina, tell us about what you do. I I feel the same as Ashanti. It's like, oh, God, now I've got to make a commitment because who have I been for the last year? (laughs) Uh, Yeah, so I'm a a performance poet and theatre maker. Um, or sometimes a theatre maker and performance poet. It depends who I'm writing blurb for. Uh, I also <laughs> I also work as an editor on scripts and poetry manuscripts. And I train horses as another side gig. But- oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. Can we just get a bit more information about that first? (laughs) Yes, yes, you can. I I travelled a curious career path from international event writer to performance poet. Um, It comes highly recommended by all (laughs) careers advice bureaus. So, yeah, up to the age of 30, I competed up to international level. My dad was an Olympic coach in three-day eventing. So um, I was born into it. And now I still, because as we all know, the arts is a really, uh, a really stable <laughs> career choice. I do often ask myself, you know, if you were going to swap, because horses is not a great, you know, financially based career choice. Like, could you not have chosen anything else that was actually easier to earn money in? But apparently yeah. not. I had, to, I had to go to even more rocky ground. Uh, yeah. So I still teach part time um, when I'm panicking about the bills. Uh, but I do enjoy it and I still get to ride, which is lovely. Yeah, it's quite nice to get on a horse and go, oh, look, I can still get it to do that. <laughs> still got it. Still got it. And give it a poem as well. Why not? <laughs> Tina, I understand uh, you're working on a collection of poems. Can you yeah. tell us more about that? Yeah, I can. It's called, um, so it's due out now in July. And it's called This Is Not Therapy. It's a quite a wide ranging collection of poems. Uh, a lot of it is about crossing those difficult thresholds because I'm at the I'm at the point where I have to grudgingly admit I am well into middle age although I don't feel like it and uh and um I sort of took some time to look back on some of my earlier thresholds if you like you know getting into adulthood um marriage uh trying to have children or not and and thought gosh you know there are a lot of those that I approach with a lot of joy and curiosity and enthusiasm but you know (laughs) Now I'm at that point in my life where there's less in front of me, probably, than behind me. It it just, I, I guess it's um, switching from that question, what am I doing with my life, to what am I doing with the rest of my life, which okay. is a subtle and important difference. Um, but my great, my great uh, sort of mentor and hero is a poet called David White. He talks about growing younger towards death. And I think that's a, a brilliant way to look at it. It's like, can you you know, let go of things that you were bothered about that seemed so important when you were younger and still approach life with joie de vivre and, you know, um, um, courage. So, yeah, it's a lot about that. And there's also some bits about folding your socks, 
um, picking up dog poo because one always has to well you know you've got to have the lighter moments as well as it's all encompassing it really is yeah, yeah I like to be an all access poet it's such a great title like this is not therapy that's a perfect title it's a, I mean it's it's well with my tongue in my cheek and I, I wanted to I'm kind of really curious to see how people respond to it because part of it is a kind of a little bit of a pushback against people who talk about um, confessional performance poetry as oh you know it's just people like blurting out their problems it's like yes yeah. do you know that we all have problems and sometimes talking about them <laughs> makes sense you know and, and it's of interest who knew just talking about the color of the tree although I love nature poetry I'm not going to start rubbishing any other form of poetry but you know I wanted to kind of go you know, there's a kind of, I'm giving away a little bit of a joke in the book, which is there comes a point where I go, do you know what? It's all therapy. Like yeah. everyone's trying to make sense of their lives. Mm. And there's a sort of parallel of the hero's journey, because I've always been really interested in that. And also, you know, what about the heroine's journey? But that's another story. We'll get over there. Um, but looking at how our own lives, the hero's journey is there to um, give us guidance of, of how we meet these difficult thresholds. And um, I always thought the hero's journey was about get the prize, you know, you go through all those trials. So you get the big gold cup at the end. I was very, <laughs> especially when I was riding horses, I was very invested in that. Yes. And my happiness was very invested in that. And then I didn't sometimes Sometimes I broke things and failed and made a fool of myself. And I thought, you know, and then also you go through this tremendous journey, especially competing and sort of win a competition. And then it was like, well, now what? Oh, you just get ready for the next one. And then I read this thing that uh, talked about, no, the point of the hero's journey is the healing you receive along the way. And I was like, oh, bugger, I still want the gold cup. <laughs> Well, maybe give me that. Um, but no, that was quite a sort of mental shift for me. So that's that's contained within this collection as well. That's so interesting, Tina, to hear you talk about a pushback against confessional therapy. I feel like I haven't encountered that. Maybe it's because confessional uh, like poetry is like my favorite form of poems <laughs> because like it's so nice. It's one of the reasons I got into poetry is because I would anytime I was feeling like a bit of like down on my mental health or in my head about something I'll go to these poetry nights and then hear everyone else talk about their personal poems but somehow f it felt like the same thing that I felt emotionally so it's really wild that anyone pushed back and also like writing is such a key part of therapy like you go to therapy and I'm always like write down how you're feeling write down what your day is it's such yeah. a wild pushback that yeah and then, as you say it's such an important part of like the healing part of the journey like so much that is just sharing your story and realizing that this thing you think is unique to you can resonate with so many different people. I don't know, I, I, I haven't encountered that. And that's so wild to me that people are like... Yeah, well, you know, there's always somebody who's not going to like what you're doing. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Or there's always somebody going, this isn't poetry because it doesn't rhyme. You know, yeah. there's a thousand... <laughs> I mean, that's the age-old thing. You know, if I roll my eyes in one more workshop where somebody goes, but it's not de dum de dum de dum It's like, no, guess what? It can be other things. <laughs> and I'm not saying every poem in the world has to be a confessional poem. But like you say, Ashanti, you know, that feeling that you're not alone, I think that's one of the great healing powers of art is yeah. to say, is to open up and say, look, this is what happened to me. This is this is uh, where I felt overwhelmed and bewildered and lost. Um, and look, I came out the other side. You know, I may be a bit raggedy around the edges, but this is possible. Um, mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm completely with you. It's one of my favorite forms as well 
but as I said, there's always somebody who won't like what you're doing. And frankly, I think if you're not surprising, disappointing, or irritating some people at some point, you're doing it wrong anyway. Just take it. You know, it's much yeah. easier than, than trying to change. Like, oh, thank God, I'm make you know, yeah. somebody's paying. You know, somebody's actually listened or paid attention, um, and they don't like it. Woohoo! Yeah. <laughs> now what? <laughs> well, the, we're drawn to human stories, though, aren't we? You want to hear about people's problems, people's vulnerabilities, and be able to connect with people. That's that's what's interesting. Absolutely. And and okay, so here's a challenge for you. I'd like you to think of the five most significant events in your life. If you just let probably one big one or suddenly flashing immediately. Yeah. And then tell me how many of those were successes and how many of them were failures or times you fell on your feet or uh, fell on your nose. Um, and you, you know, the things that really shape us are divorce losing a loved one losing um an important job do you know what i mean yeah. It's, yeah that that's actually what shapes us into the people we become um it's always very easy to say this when you're not going through one of those life events there'll be people out there going could you shut up to you? <laughs> i don't care that this is character building i've already got enough character thank you very much <laughs> uh, but it is the truth of it when you come out it's like what did i what did I learn? What did I get from that? That, um, that yeah, made me usually just makes you a more compassionate person, hopefully, at the end of it. Yeah. It's also really interesting to you know what you said, because like, it reminds me also of how much gatekeeping we do. Like, gate poetry is such an interesting art form because there is so much gatekeeping yeah. where all you need to be a poet is to have a pen and paper or have a phone with notes go like it's it's like one of the cheapest like art forms I know that, like, <laughs> and there's a amazing a poet um black activist called Audre Lord, and she talks about how often poetry is gatekept um because it's so accessible but it's wild like I know that um what's that Instagram poet that like um that has a book. Rupi Kaur. Yes. There's so like I didn't realise people didn't like her because like she was one of the reasons that I got into poetry because I read her book in one afternoon and thought it was amazing. And so many poetry nights, people will be so like judgmental about, oh, she's not a real poet. She's this, she's Instagram. Like, oh, she's got people into something. And mm-hmm. as you say, like sometimes when you, the things that shape you are these moments of hardship and then the resilience you take to go through them trying to tell people like how to process that or which ways to process that is a thing I think we often do as humans and poetry mm-hmm. I feel like you can look at how people actually towards poems and see like it's just, like one way of analyzing how people like to gatekeep like healing and process and yeah yeah indeed when I turned 30 my mom was like oh everything just gets so much easier now <laughs> like, wait till you know, you're 50 <laughs> but in terms of like um judging yourself oh, this is going back a couple of conversations sorry because you're so much more rounded as a character as a person not a character <laughs> Get out of play. we're not in a play but we are oh we are oh no okay there oh <laughs> Because not that like you're completely rounded and whole, but you're just be able to cope with everything. You care less about what people think of you, <laughs> and like all those things that get caught. You get caught up in your like your twenties, and particularly about how you look and how your people look at you and all that jazz. Yeah, and I, I have to say that just gets it does. It just gets better. <laughs> 
as far as I'm concerned, obviously not everyone's going to have my experience, but it's particularly yeah. it's a conversation I have with my friends a lot now coming into our fifties and you're just like, well, that was a lot of wasted time and angst, wasn't <laughs> it? And that's not to belittle anything that somebody yeah. might be going through at all, because at the time it feels very real. And maybe you have to go through it in order to find out it wasn't as important as you thought it was. Um, and I'm talking very general terms here, which is, you know, it's always easy to sound right <laughs> when you're generalizing. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I hear you about that, Miriam. I, I remember turning 13. There was, I, I was like, oh, yeah, that doesn't matter. And I, and the one, most wonderful thing you said there is not caring what other people think, which is harder to do. It's easy to say and harder to do in yeah. practice because it sort of sneaks mm. in, doesn't it, in yeah. clever little Absolutely. places. But yeah. it is interesting. I, I know whenever I'm starting to feel uncomfortable, I'm like, oh, I wonder what's wrong. It's like mm, pretty much probably wondering what that person thinks doing yeah. x you know even somebody who might compliment me on social i mean you know occasionally that does happen uh <laughs> compliment me on social media for instance and you know if i like them slash slightly fancy them i can start going through some amazing dance to get you know to respond to me again i like it and but i you know but then i'm 18 again in this yeah. 53 year old body 52 <laughs> we haven't quite got there calm down <laughs> Ashanti, you wrote and performed in one woman show British Vogue at Offbeat in 2019, which you were a supported artist. Um, can you tell us a bit about that show? Yeah, it's actually really wild. I, sorry, wild is my favourite word at the moment. So <laughs> you're going to be hearing a lot of it. So think about how that was like two years ago. And like, interesting, because I'm coming up quite a reflective period of being like, oh, that was two years ago. Like, you know, um, how, how does it feel since that? Um, so the show... Well, something I actually, talking about birthdays and uh, ages and significant, I actually started writing it a couple of months before I started turning 25 because I was freaking out about turning 25 because I was like, oh my gosh, I'm going to be in my mid-20s. Um, I think in your early 20s, everyone's like, oh yeah, make mistakes. And suddenly I was like, oh my yeah. gosh, like what if people like don't, what if I don't have that, like, you know, that that rope to just experiment? Like I, I suddenly was like, oh, I need to like have stuff um, like settled, I guess. So that was like, one of the things also was uh, when Edward Enningfield took over being the editor of British Rogue, uh, my mum had kind of bought me the first edition. And I was in like a real, like, I didn't really recognise how bad my mental health state was at that time. Looking back, I was in a real, a real bad place. And I remember like picking up this magazine and like reading his editor's note and genuinely having to put it down and being really overwhelmed because I suddenly was thinking about all the times in my life in which people had asked me, you know, where are you from? Where are you really from? Mm. You know, oh, but you're not really British. And seeing this magazine and someone that looked like me on it and being like, oh, this, you know, this would have been easier. And like listening to this person write about their experience of being British and, and having that taken away and really connecting to it. So I literally had started writing and I wasn't sure what the writing was going to be at that point in time. And it sort of eventually evolved into this one woman show, basically very very semi-autobiographical it was like a fictional character but all the life experience was just mined from my life about the period in time in which I moved to Brazil kind of looking for some sort of ownership and identity and not finding it there and then coming back to Britain and trying to get my life together and um and 
yeah, like the idea of trying to get, I'm air quoting, which you can't see, but like I'm air quoting <laughs> trying to get my life together because I don't even really know what that means. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and yeah, and it was just about, just about that and about kind of race and identity and you know, dual heritage identity and what it means to be British um, and what it means to be British and trying to get your life together and how that identity can kind of impact that. Yeah, it's really interesting to like, think back on that show and that process because I, I think doing the show I realized it's a lot of my a lot of the poems I written talked about the same life experiences I'd written about in the show so it was like a real moment of me realizing this was like a theme that I'd explored quite a lot also sharing that theme with other people especially people close to me in my life and then listening to what they thought of it as well and the themes they took away from it um I think sometimes when you perform I don't know if you ever find this sometimes when you perform a piece of work you can think it is one thing but that moment you let it go and let it become a thing in the world sometimes it's almost more interesting listening to what other people have taken away from that mm-hmm. and sometimes you can have re- I found I had more realizations about myself afterwards I was like oh my gosh yeah oh I didn't think of that and ooh, and then it was a little bit this is getting close to home because that was actually written about a thing that I did <laughs> what happened to me yeah it's like when people say, oh, you're holding up a mirror to my life. And it's actually, you're holding up a mirror to them and they're holding up, however many of them are in the audience, a mirror to you. And it's like, oh, gosh. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think you'll be um, touring it at any point or developing it further? Or Yeah. So I'm, this is this is the thing that I'm coming to. Um, I'm realising, I think I had this especially with poetry nights I'd go and I'd be like I have to perform a new poem I have to perform a new poem and I'm recently I'm realizing oh it's okay to just do one thing and dig into it Mm. and tell Mm. that story until that story is told and come back to it so I'm not 24 anymore I'm now 28 um I'm not in the same position I was when I was writing the show and I took I deliberately took some time from it at the time when I wrote it because actually it was a bit too much writing it and then acting in it and then going into all the character development of all the rehearsals to get into this character but then also knowing all the character experience the base you know it was it was a bit too much mm. going on at times so like let me take a step back from this and then with the coronavirus and the pandemic the, this time last year I made a decision that I wasn't going to pressurize myself to to apply to anything, to do anything. Yeah. If I wanted to be creative for me, that was fine. But I was like, this doesn't feel the right time. So I finally feel like I'm in this space right now to start re-exploring it again. Um, so I'm looking forward to kind of developing the script now with the new life experiences, new perspective I have now and how that changes how I think about the character and being a bit more removed from what I was writing about. Um, and I'm also, I said this after I wrote it, I really want to just write it and give it to someone else, give it to like a biracial actor and a director and let them do their thing and me come watch it. Like I really want to accent again for sure, but I also really want to have that space back yeah. Yeah. and to see how it, what other people can read from from something that I've written. Like I just, I'm just super excited to, it also could be nice for me to have that space in the story and for it to kind of be a story and not almost like my therapy session in a way, you know? Yeah. yeah. Tina, you were working on a show called Rest pre-pandemic. Can you tell us a bit about that show and any plans you have for it? Oh, my goodness. Yeah, so um, so Rest was due to be my fifth solo show. It's about this idea that we have this pressure on us from society to be sort of switched on 24-7 or, and work incredibly hard towards our dreams. And I've burnt out three times in my life 
in big ways and and some little minor one well when i say minor it's never minor to be burnt out that's for sure and uh, i wanted to explore this idea that actually taking rest was more conducive to the creative process than um, working 24-7 or being on 24-7 and how do you balance that in in you know in the way our society is um I, I you know I really hate that that phrase our society because I think it's so amorphous because there's plenty of societies where they're like no don't be ridiculous you know <laughs> work two hours two hours a day and, and then sit on the beach I don't know. I'd like to find that society. That's for sure. Um, <laughs> yeah, let me know. When you yeah, I will. I will. Um, <laughs> so basically what I did, I, I went through several iterations during the p- pandemic. Um, so what I've got now is I've got a working script, which uh, I really will get in a room with a director. I had options to, I did a, I wrote a version which would be shot as a film in my house. Um, I've written it as a memoir and I've also written it as a collection of essays because I just kept coming back and saying, what, what way can this idea come into the world? If it can't be a live show right now, does it want to be something else? Because it was always a little niggle because I've done, as I said, four shows before, and three of those were autobiographical. Um, and I'm kind of a bit like, okay, teens, how much, you know, how much more of interest is there here? You know, maybe you could, maybe you could present in another way. So I'm still, the jury's still out on that. But because This Is Not Therapy is coming out this year, I'm actually putting rest slightly on hold. It's having a rest. Uh, because I want to concentrate on getting this book out in in new ways because we're still you know there's the first glimmers of I've got some tentative bookings for June and July of like maybe if you know the stars all align and everything happens we'll be able to do this Uh, so yes that's where all my energy is going to go but it'll be interesting for me because the pandemic was I was super lucky at the beginning of the first lockdown that for once in my life, I'd organized my finances pretty well. And I was like, oh, OK, I've actually got a cushion for three months. Unbelievable. I don't know. I was <laughs> That just happened. And no, it didn't just happen. There was some planning. Uh, I didn't plan the pandemic, FYI. <laughs> uh, oh, I know, I know. And then I was, I was also lucky to be paid for a job, which I didn't have to do. Um, but because the money had, you know, there was already the funding there, the organisers very kindly said, look, we're still going to pay all the freelancers because we know how difficult this is going to be. And I had this amazing, so I was able, because the financial pressure was off, and this is key actually to being able to take time off, I think, I I was able to step back and go, I can now really drill in to this experience of, of rest. And that meant that the show has changed a lot from I think Craig and Miriam, you might have seen. Were you at the scratch the OTM scratch night? Yeah. Yes. So yeah. you know, I was. It started as my, I'd say, pre-pandemic self of this very overactive manic person who finds it impossible to stop. You know, actually, really anxiety-inducing to take a break, even though I know I'm supposed to. And now, um, the experience of the pandemic has changed my perspective a lot. And and I hear what you say, Ashanti, about it's lovely to keep revisiting a piece of work. And my experience with the autobiographical pieces I did was, yeah, I worked with them for, well, you know, worked on them for a couple of years and then did shows with them for two or three years. And then I'd come to a point where I'm like, I'm really done with this show. It's wonderful. It's done. It's worked its magic on me. It's worked its magic on, 
hopefully it's magic on the audience but you know I always want to go into a subject that Bryony Kimmings actually gave me not speaking to me just me when I was in a workshop with her but you know I'll make it sound like we were great sure. yeah. uh, but she said when you pick a subject for a show make sure it's something you can be interested in for at least two years because that's how mm. hanging out with it you know by the time you've got funding and rehearsing written it so um yes I've hung out with this idea for about four years now and I've changed so much I don't know if it's a, still a show or not Sorry, Craig, that was the longest answer. <laughs> that is great. But so it will either be a book of essays. I don't think it'll be a memoir. I don't, it's not quite, it's not got quite enough tra- tragedy in it to be a memoir. <laughs> I've decided. It'll either be a show or a book of essays, I think, in the end of the day. How are you finding that process of having like the one subject but coming at it from different sort of like almost like different platforms, like the essay writing and the memoir? Do you find that doing that sort of when you sort of switching between the two and do you find that like that kind of looking at that subject from the the essay perspective changes how you how you write them when you come at it looking at it from a memoir perspective that's a really good question um yes in certain ways I think the essay version is going to work because that allows me to have a lot of different perspectives as opposed to having being telling a story as the main perspective do you see what I mean so Mm. rather I still with the essays it's still got a sort of narrative arc but it's more it's actually more like a collection of poetry where you get these clues Mm. and then they spaces which people can and I love I love in a poem and I love in a story where's uh and a piece of architecture and music you know where's the space because that's what allows the audience into whatever you're doing. And that's a big thing I work on in editing as well, is trimming away all the fat from a piece. Because, for instance, sitting in, an, say, an open mic or somebody's set, and you're listening to a poem and it starts well, and then there's a point where all you can hear is like, nah, mm. and then there might be a good line, and then, nah. And, and, you know, for years I thought to myself, oh, God, my focus is appalling. Why can I listen to some people and not other people? And then working more and more, with editing my own work I was like because I feel that as a performer there can be a place where you're just rushing to get through that set of lines yeah and and I was like oh maybe it's because they don't need to be there because we've always got this tendency as human beings to want to show something and then explain it to make sure everyone got it you know Uh, and not allowing but then that's like like me talking and talking and talking, which I'm very good at, and not allowing anyone in to answer a question or respond to what I've said. It's not a conversation anymore. And for me, being on stage is an energetic conversation. You know, I do my thing and then I've just got a nanosecond mic. How how are we taking this? And then that might change how I do the next part. So that's the same for the poems. And then coming back to the idea of rest as a set of essays, I really like the thought of having a contemplation about rest uh, and its part in the creative process and then having breath in between those. Mm. Uh, it, something inside me just went, yeah, that feels good. Whereas the memoir just felt a little, and the show, I don't know, I keep falling in, I read the script back of the show and I go, oh, no, that's all right. There's some good stuff in here because that's part of the show writing process as well. You know, you well, I, I write a tremendous amount of drafts and, you know, on about draft six or seven, you're like, what am I doing with my life? You know? <laughs> <laughs> I've been working away at this and it's still really muddy, um, but you've got to have faith through that bit. And uh, so that's what I'm going. I'm going, OK, I can see the good bits. And so something will come of this. That really resonated with me. I, I, I noticed that when I was performing poetry, it's when 
poetry. So that was not my poetry anyway. <laughs> I was just playing poems. <laughs> um, <laughs> I would like when I started to feel more comfortable in pausing on stage like how much it changed Mm. like my delivery and Mm. feeling the audience was with me Mm. and like learning how to like I don't know know why I want to use the word weaponize but almost weaponizing the pauses and be like okay which part do I want the audience to think of it um and I remember when I did my play my family came to see it on the second night and the third night and they I thought the third night went really well but they were like oh no we actually enjoyed it more on the second night because the third night it felt like you were rushing through it a bit you paused more after some moments like in this mm. and it was really interesting because I might as a performer I thought that the third night was better because it was slicker it was quicker it was this but my family were like no we we like those moments where you just mm. kind of sat there on stage for a second um that was and like I'm just into like I've just discovered Studio Ghibli and anime um so I've been going down numerous rabbit holes but like I find it really interesting that even in like like in that art form one of the things that like Hayao Miyazaki um always says is like he includes these moments of pause in the character where the the anime is just like the character is just looking out in space or doing things like there's moments for being human that like Mm. you don't necessarily need to get people to draw because it's obviously expensive for every second of frame in those things it's so expensive yeah so it's really interesting like I think it's really hard to forget that like recently trying to step back into being creative again after having a year of really not doing anything it's been really like I've been really like oh my gosh I know this is a mistake you know like you know I should have kept on doing my I always try to do like one creative thing a month two creative things a month that kind of like you know that kind of output and I was like it's been really hard trying to step back into it but I'm trying to remind myself like you needed that space like you needed that space to adjust the madness happening but it's so hard to give yourself that like that grace I don't know if anyone else has found that like it's so hard when you're taking time out just to be like this is allows like you don't you know you need this to do more things in the future yeah I tried to write a show about it (laughs) (laughs) like I'm really feeding you Tina with the rest (laughs) and then you're questioning is it rest is it because I'm lazy is it this Mm -hmm. it's like no just breathe it's Mm -hmm. fine Mm -hmm. yeah and so many people are having those thoughts as well yeah. and, and yep. those discussions. It's none of us are alone with this. Mm. And, you know, and I'm not going to razz on social media. Oh, it's all that fault because social media is not good or bad. It's just a tool and it depends how you use it. Yeah. But when we, you know, looping back to what we were saying about getting older and not caring what people think about us so much, actually that gets triggered because, you know, I've got, I've got one a poetry friend I'm so fond of them they have written like three shows they've got a book coming out they're all during the pandemic they've gone into creative overdrive and <laughs> I'm so happy for them and I always have to take a breath and go and it's okay I've done it my way yeah. and I have to say that to myself maybe 200 times yeah. Yeah. you know it is okay he will need a break at some point because if he doesn't he'll break down you know you you will break down that's just it's a law of nature you don't that's why we have seasons that's why that's why the sabbath was invented it's actually mm. so to do to have a day when you know yourself not as what you're producing but mm. as you know depending mm. on your belief system but but know yourself as um as source as spirit as as something bigger than just this human body mm. and that's what Okay, spoiler alert, if this show ever does appear, that, that's <laughs> kind of what my main discovery about rest was. Right. Because I, I don't always 
find it easy to sit still, that becomes more anxiety inducing for me. But the idea of rest as coming back to wholeheartedness, coming back to um, doing things with my whole self, not just as another thing that I tick off the list, was actually, that was a moment of revelation for me. And I like a damn good nap as well. <laughs> <laughs> you say that's so interesting, what you said to me about doing something with your whole self, like being there for your whole moment. It's like, as opposed to just like getting from point A to B and then do X, Y, Z, and then I'm going to go to bed. Um, yes. It was really, I found that very reassuring to hear you talk about uh, seeing people do all these projects on social media and having that moment, because that's actually why I stepped away from social, not I discovered Twitter, so I went down one rabbit hole and jumped into another. But I stepped away from Instagram this time last year because I was seeing everyone do all these creative projects and do an amazing thing of lockdown. I wasn't in that space. Yeah. I felt like I wasn't in this place to appreciate other people's art because it was making me feel jealous and not good about myself. And I was feeling bad, like, oh, I want to be there here to support my friends. I don't want to be that person that's like low-key feeling resentful because other people were in different space. So I just decided to just take a step back. Mm-hmm. I'm really trying to get back into that space because like as much as I love performing poetry, I before I it took it took me about two, three years to get the guts to get on stage. And before that I would go and just hear people's words and really enjoy it and appreciate it. And I guess it was, it was like a hard thing to be like, oh this pressure to be productive has now felt like it's taking me away from enjoying like the words mm. in the stories of my friends mm. um and I'm still like working my way through that because you know like it's not bad to feel jealous at all but like, just wanting to like I don't you know I want to step back I want to listen to your to other people's work in a from a place of just listening to people's words because I want to hear your work I want to support you I want to hear what you have to say and I don't want to be sat here the whole time thinking about what I could be doing or how I could perform that or you know um and it's really hard because I don't want it and I'm recognizing that often I enjoy people's works more I know I'm working on something and it's like okay how do I enjoy people's work when I'm on a period of off I completely understand that and I I have the same feeling not I have it pre-pandemic as well when I'm working I find that I'm much more supportive of other Mm. people because I don't I'm not, you know, looking at myself and feeling like, why am I not doing this and that? So I think you're definitely not alone in that. And especially now. And and you know what? I don't think you have to enjoy people's stuff all the time. No. You know, actually, if you're not able to work, if, if you're not feeling in the creative space, then you're depleted in some way. And if you haven't mm. got enough for yourself, you know, you always fill your cup first and give from the overflow is the... And so if your cup's empty, no, you can't give proper attention and enjoy that. And so you have to kind of keep going in until you find the place where you start to fill yourself up again, however that is. So I wouldn't put pressure on yourself, frankly. You know, sometimes I'm like, no, I can't be asked to go to the theatre or I probably I mean I don't think I'll be able to stop myself once the door's open again I'm gonna be like banging on the door of old fire station like no not her again there's only 10 people allowed in go away give someone else a job please um but um but you know also you know I I often consider that I never get anything useful done in November and I've I've always laughed because if I try and go for funding or apply for something in November it's like I, I I work against myself to get it done because I'm feeling really tired but I should you know because that's what proactive artists do and then I don't get it I'm like well you may as well have had a nap you know it would have been it would have been more 
that would have produced more in the end of the day. So, so whatever your down month is, revel in it. Yeah. yeah. Ashanti, you also work at the old fire station. Can you tell us a bit about your position there and, and how it's changed this past year? Yeah, it's been wild. Um, I literally started working there for about three weeks before the first lockdown. Gosh. Yeah, so I was I was uh, the marketing and development assistant originally, and now I am just the marketing assistant. So yeah, it's been it's been awesome. Um, I've like helped out on a lot of other projects as well. So arts, uh, the old fire station has this like storytelling project they were doing. They were collecting stories in um, the first lockdown. I'm sorry, I'm gonna do some like shameless promotion. Promotion, please do. It's such a good project. Um, but they just collected stories from um the Oxford Hub's response that they organised across the city. And then we commissioned some artwork from that. So you can like see it, uh, like Oxford Together Stories. You put it onto Google, it comes up. And then they had like a report that they did. So I kind of like for a while was helping out on that project while there were no active shows and stuff. And obviously it's really nice now. Now we've kind of adapted and are continuing to adapt to like the online, to like the circumstances. So there's like Zoom shows, Ah, there's free Zoom shows that you can watch until the 31st of March. Sorry, I was literally scheduling some marketing stuff online, so it's like all in my head right now. Um, <laughs> well, this is very handy. <laughs> so yeah, um, anyone who is missing that, you can watch it at any point, anywhere. Um, so it's been fun to kind of like, well, fun is like a weird word to use when we're in the middle of a global health crisis. But it's been like kind of interesting to see like how places have like, adapt and to kind of be in a building and and seeing that change happen like my job role as well how that's changed yeah Tina you've written four one woman shows with six runs at the Edinburgh Fringe Mm -hmm. what can an audience expect from your shows I write and I didn't know exactly what I was setting out to write when I wrote my first show because it was quite a kind of um it was one of those ignorance is bliss situations because my uh, I'd been performing quite a lot and my friend Lucy Ayrton and I were running Hammer and Tongue or uh, hosting Hammer and Tongue in Oxford. And she'd been to Edinburgh quite a few times uh, in producer roles and that kind of thing. And so she invited me up for the last few days, I think it was 2011, because I couldn't really get my head around it. It's very difficult to get your head around at Edinburgh in, unless you've actually been there. And I went there and I saw, I went and saw a load of shows there. And at that point, most spoken word shows were what I'd call a best of. So it was just like an extended set. But I saw Richard Marsh's Skittles, which was um, an entire show written in blank verse, a one man show. And it was phenomenal. And I came out of it. He had, a, it was a fabulous story and it went on to be made into um uh, a radio four program called it was called something else because of course I couldn't say the word skittles uh advertising on bbc but anyway um it was a very successful show and i was like oh that's the sort of show i want to write <laughs> you know all i'd done was run, win a few slams at that point anyway lucy and i dared each other to both write a show for the following year and i think if i hadn't had her with me that it might not have happened but so what I have ended up writing are these kind of what I call poetry musicals so it's uh it'll be a story and then you know when in a musical they break into song I break into a poem (laughs) which is either a a comment on what's just happened or moves the story on and and that just kind of evolved out of experimentation really and I work very much on uh, the audience is my best friend and you've all come around and I'm going to tell you this fantastic story that I've uh, 
you know that I've heard or I want to I want to share um so yeah it's a very intimate vulnerable I also have a lot of laughter in my shows and I also make people cry <laughs> it's quite you know I do aim to uh, go through the whole range of emotions because I don't really think of myself as a comedy a lot of people say oh you're very funny but I don't see myself as a comedic poet I'm not not every poem is a funny poem some of them are quite thoughtful so yeah that's the sort of if you like a, if you like to be taken on a sort of personal adventure and also some of the um one of the reviews I got was, you know, uh, grounded in self-mockery. And that's it. I will, I'm totally willing to laugh at my own foibles. And I think that gives permission for people to uh, accept their sort of foibles and failings. I'd say mm. failings with the old air quotes as well. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's kind of what it's like being in a show with me. <laughs> Tina, what mm. is blank verse? Blank verse. Well, that's, just how it sounds on the tin really it's just it's not a set rhyme or mm-hmm. meter um but it will have a rhythm otherwise it's just chopped up prose do you work right in blank first now or free verse i don't know man i just write <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I mean, you can hear me stuttering there because i do know all the formal forms but quite often i'm like oh man it's like you know if you ask any novelist what's a fronted adverbial they'd be like you what the what but yeah blank verse is just kind of your your basic you unit of poetry without um a set form like a sonnet or uh, okay i always feel like i like learn all of this for like gcse and a level english and then promptly <laughs> forgot everything i mean i think that's a universal <laughs> universal experience yeah of everything at school yeah i have a, a quick side question on uh you mentioned hammer and tongue mm. tina what is that oh so hammer and tongue is uh oxford's probably its longest running poetry night uh sla- well only slam poetry night uh, at the old fire station and it was founded by steve larkin uh, and he and it's a network of poetry. There's, I think, there's five or six gigs nationally, and Steve likes to sort of take the national, like the overseeing role. And then, but for many years, uh, first Lucy and I hosted it, and then my husband Neil and I hosted it to the Oxford branch. And so, so it's a it's an event where you'll have two featured poets, and then you have a poetry slam in the middle, which is. Um, a poetry competition where you have three minutes on the mic to perform one of your pieces and five selected judges from the audience hold up scorecards at the end and you knock off the top you knock off the bottom and the three scores in the middle are added together and the winner wins just fame and glory that's it (laughs) it's basically it's a way of making an open mic much more exciting Right. And getting punters in. But it is really, slam is really good fun. And it's a very good discipline for learning to get on stage, make an impression, and then bugger off before you annoy anybody. Yeah. You've got three minutes. Go. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, own the stage. Uh, wh- where are you different from the person before? And the three minutes starts from the moment you start speaking. So if you start umming and ahhing and doing a long introduction, you're, you're wasting it. So right. it really taught me how to go on stage and switch on. Like I'm here and and also to really know my stuff, because if you don't, again, you've lost it. But it means then I feel also as a hope because I've done a lot. of I don't do much hosting. What nobody does, blah, blah, blah. But um, I I stopped hosting about four years ago, mainly 
but I can always pull the energy back. That's what a host's job is. You know, if the energy has gone flat in the room is to come back on and pick it all up again. And so I'm really, I just have that in my bones. And that means in a show, if I feel like a show's getting away from me, I have a lot of confidence to go, okay, switch up now. Just like, it's not even a thought. It's, it just happens, like change it. So you get this audience back with you. Sounds like a, a great event and a good exercise maybe for any performer. Yeah, I really mm-hmm. think so. I mean, there's a lot of people who don't like it because it's got that competitive element and you're pretending that, you know, winning is really important. And there's a, a saying we would trot it out, which was um, the point is the point is not the point. The point is the poetry. And that's absolutely true unless you're the person who wins and then winning's really important. <laughs> <laughs> Still a bit competitive. Never going to get rid of that. <laughs> Ashanti, have do you do poetry slams, and and what what do what would an audience get from your work? I mean, I, I did Hammer and Tongue um, Oxford actually uh, in November twenty nineteen, maybe <laughs> before this happened. Um, and like one of the reasons was like I think after like I think twenty nineteen was the year I was like right, I'm going to do. You know, at school, we had a smart target. So, like, smart, measurable, achievable, realistic, yeah. time. Um, the fact that I can still remember it. Um, <laughs> I was like, all right, I need to... Because I'm, I'm that person who, like, wake up and I'd be like, all right, well, it's the end of today. I need to have written a novel and a screenplay and this. And then tomorrow, fame and glory. And I'm like, right, let me, let me break some stuff down to what I can actually do. So I told myself, okay, 2019, obviously I applied and got the offbeat. Uh, so I was like, uh, well, I set all these goals in 2018 for 2019, um, not yeah. offbeat in particular, but that I wanted to perform into this thing that I was working on that became British Vogue. But I also was like, oh, I want to be a bit more consistent with my poetry stuff. I think I performed for the first time on stage in 2018. So I told myself I'd do like uh, once a month, I would perform on poetry, a poetry gig. And I ended up doing like two months most for that year and sometimes more and stuff but it was like a nice smart target that would keep me being consistent because I was like this is much better than just doing a whole bunch and then not doing anything yeah um so towards the end of that year when I was feeling a, a bit more confident sort of on stage and stuff I did two I did the slam in Oxford I also did a, a poetry night called Poetic Unity that's held at the black or was held at that cultural archives had a sort of black history month mm. uh competition for poems so I did that as proper nerve-wracking because people were like you know like, standard was really really good so yes yeah, so I didn't I didn't like win or place in that one and I did the Oxford slam one I didn't win um on that one but like it wasn't even about that it was just about like Tina said sort of like the skills you developed so, like knowing that yeah. the other one I had 10 minutes so I was like right I gotta get my poem I'm also can be quite lax at learning poems off by heart as well so it made me kind of like I got to learn it off by heart and then because I'm not gonna be reading out which also you can read it, like, even if you're reading a poem from the page, it's still a performance, it's still a delivery, so you've got to put the pauses in there and bring people in. Yeah. But I think when you don't have it in your hands and you're just looking at the audience, you know, you're thinking a bit more about body language and, you know, how you, where you want those pauses in and if you want the pace to be quicker at some point or tone and intonation and all that stuff. So it really kind of helped me to, to kind of sharpen all that up. I think... What I've been told by people to expect, I guess, from my poetry work is that, like, I have quite, like, a storytelling. Like, a lot of my work often comes from just writing for myself and then performing it. So a lot of it is just almost like a dear diary format. I guess I'm 
looking at moving away from or looking at what that means. But a lot of it is just like storytelling. It's me taking snapshots of something, like a, a moment or an emotion that inspired a poem and trying to bring you into that, to whatever it is that I was feeling in that moment. I also think it's an exercise in performing as well. Because if like, for example, I have a, a poem that I wrote after a breakup that I don't really feel that hurt anymore. But like when I'm performing it, it's like, right, I've got to try and tap into some of that feeling of being rejected. Otherwise it's not going to hit, yeah. you know, it's, it's hard. And what are you looking forward to in the next year? Oh my gosh. I'm actually currently in a sort of a 10 days isolation uh, period because someone we came in contact with had COVID. So like, I'm just really looking forward to like being able to go outside about feeling a sense of anxi- anxiety. Like I, it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's weird that like, um, even thinking about poetry nights and stuff like that, even beyond getting back on stage is like, being comfortable being in a space with people so I'm, I'm most looking forward to that in this year I know that probably is probably shared by a lot of people I'm also I'm just I guess I'm just kind of looking forward to like a year of have a bit more like stability in my life and like which is like a, a huge privilege and huge thing to be grateful for um so I'm mm-hmm. looking forward to like just enjoying this year and like also I'm looking forward to also from an artistic point of view like looking back on British Road which is a play about like uncertainty and like poor mental health to be able to dive into those feelings while not maybe always feeling personally in that storm at a moment so I guess I'm looking forward to like continuing doing the work to feel like in a good positive mental health and maybe starting to enjoy that feeling a bit more and Tina what are you looking forward to in the next year do you know what I'm really looking forward to firstly seeing my friends properly I'm also looking forward to whenever it happens being on stage again because I mean, I have a really excellent life. I, uh, I, I've definitely discovered that during the pandemic and I can survive, you know, thrive without being on stage. But there's something so special about being connected with an audience. And um, so I honestly, I'm looking forward to that. And last summer, uh, I did some social, what I call socially distanced garden gigs. So I had, you know, when we could have, um, you could have up to 12 people meeting at, well, I can't even remember what the rules were, but we did obey them. Yeah. <laughs> but um, I, I basically, to workshop some of the material that would go into This Is Not Therapy, I got my friends just invited a few of their friends around and they all bought their own food. And we sat ha- sat them in the garden and went, right, here we go. And I did about a two hour show. Didn't let them out. Uh, it's like, no, you're not going home until you've heard another one. And um, but it was so it was it was such a simple way to do a gig, but it was so good. It was so much fun. And so even if it's at that level, I'm really happy. Yeah, I'll be looking forward to doing that again. And I'm really looking forward to having this book out because um, I've worked with a a professional designer for the first time. I've always been quite lo-fi DIY, you know. I will make, I will get this made for 500 quid, you know, show wise, if that's what I've got to do. Um, So it's been nice to be able to take my time and go, no, let's make this, um, let's make this a little classier. And I've been working, a friend of mine has just started, his marketing company is, is getting into helping people with publishing. So I'm very lucky that he's wanted to do a beta test of his package that he's going to offer uh, on me for free. <laughs> I can see I've still got a little DIY bit. Like I will con somebody into something to help me out. Um, but you know, yes, I'm definitely doing him a favour. I think he's doing me a lot more of a favour. But don't worry about it. Yeah. So, so, I, but I'm I'm reveling in that next level of expertise, and I'm so I'm so excited about getting this book out there because um, I've, uh, I I feel like I, I was really 
proud of my last book, which is called Everything Wrong With You Is Beautiful. And I feel like that, but this is a, a, the next step up. I've really made a shift. And so I can't wait to see what people think about it, whether I've just gone so far up my own ass. <laughs> I don't know, but um, we will see. Tina, where's best to keep up to date with all of your work? Yeah, so um, I'm not a very good social media. I am on the Facebooks and the Twitters and the Instagram, but frankly, don't expect me to post anything. Um, okay. I will have uh, that often. Um, but please come and friend me and, you know, occasionally I'll say something interesting. If you're really interested in me, uh, you can email me at Tina at tinasedahome.com and I'll pop you on my mailing list because I have I like to make it a kind of it's full of kind of writing and editing tips as well as you know what I'm doing and so I try to make it something that people really want to read not just a, a marketing thing do you have a website I do and it but and it will be updated apparently by my marketing team oh god I'm <laughs> loving saying that by about the middle of <laughs> April and we all we all very spunky new because they took a look at it and they went no no this doesn't work anymore and I'm like oh but I was really proud of it when I made it 10 years ago and they're like yeah and it shows so it will yes I have a website tinasetahome.com um I still think it's all right you know you can see some bits of video of me you can get in touch so and Shansi where can people keep up to date with your work you can find me on Instagram I have not updated it in a while but you can find me at poetry that unpicks same my facebook page uh you can type in shanti weaver artwell or at poetry that unpicks and on twitter which is my most active but it's a lot of nonsense i'm retweeting <laughs> and a lot of me like tweeting my reactions to the office which i have discovered in this oh <laughs> so you want to if you want to hear my live reactions to what i think of that um, you can follow my Twitter, which is at Ashanti WA. Well, thank you both for joining us today. This has been brilliant. No, thank you for having us, Miriam and Craig. It's been an absolute joy talking to you guys. I really hope we'll be seeing each other's lovely faces very soon. Thank you very much to our guests, Ashanti Wheeler Artwell and Tina Sederholm. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review and subscribe. And you can find us on Twitter at Ox Theatre Makers, Instagram Oxfordshire Theatre, Facebook Oxfordshire Theatre Makers and our email is Oxfordshire Theatre Makers Events at gmail.com.